chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 7. And also as you're getting there, I wonder if any of you recollect, there was a TV show back in the 1990s. Um, so Bryson, Jonathan, I'm already kind of dating myself on that one. But it was a show called Early Edition. Does anybody remember that show? Okay, Marnie, maybe Jason. So the point of that show, there was this guy, I believe his name was Gary, and he would receive a newspaper. Now I know that kind of dates itself right there because not a lot of people get those anymore. But he would get the newspaper a day early of the events that were going to take place. So basically, he would receive this newspaper, he'd look at it, and he was getting a glimpse into the future. So from there, the episodes would kind of go about, you know, there was a fire at this apartment or whatever, and Gary would almost, in a sense, like put on a Superman cape. He didn't really have a cape, but he would go and, and try to save the day. Well, he had this other buddy that was a little more unscrupulous, perhaps, and once he kind of figured out what was going on with his buddy Gary, of course he wanted to use that for monetary gain. And the first thing that was on his mind was going to the horse tracks, because all the winners were listed in the newspaper. Well, today we're going to be taking a look at, again, this is the Advent season, which means the coming of Jesus Christ, and the fact that he's already come once, but also the fact that he's going to be coming again. And really, we're focusing in on one of the prophecies of Jesus coming the first time, of him being born of the Virgin Mary. Prophecy, the idea of being able to foretell and to be able to predict the future. And God used certain instruments, certain mouthpieces in ages past to foretell and to be the mouthpiece of God and to give warnings and at times to give signs of how God was going to accomplish his purposes at just the right time. You think, and actually, let's look at a few different of those in Isaiah before we actually dial in and begin looking a little bit more in Isaiah 7. But in Isaiah, you can look over to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and let me begin reading in verses 6 and 7. It says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, prophecy. And again, we've got to remind ourselves, Isaiah is writing this hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. You think of Isaiah chapter 53, you don't necessarily have to turn there, but that is the passage, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Isaiah was predicting in Isaiah 53, the suffering Savior. The Savior who would have the wrath of God placed upon him because our sins were placed upon his shoulders. And he was like a lamb, an innocent lamb that was led to the slaughter willingly because he would suffer for the people. Read Isaiah 53. It's almost impossible not to make the correlation um, between that and what Jesus accomplished in his life and on the cross. Turn over to Micah chapter 5. They're in the Minor Prophets. 
Micah chapter 5, verse 2, says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And you may wonder, you know, there's times when we wonder, okay, were the people getting what the prophets were saying? And quite frankly, I think there's times in which you, I wonder, and I think other you know, commentators and, and scholars much wiser than myself wonder, okay, were they, as they were pronouncing what God was telling them, were they really seeing into the future, or would they be kind of surprised by some of it? However, Micah 5, 2 if you remember with me the, the Christmas story, do you remember you had the wise men that had traveled and they showed up in Jerusalem? They showed up at Herod's doorstep and they began saying, hey, we followed the star. Where, where is this king supposed to be born? And do you remember Herod? And it said all of Jerusalem around him was nervous. They were scared about what this announcement was. And he went and he asked the scholars and people that were experts in the Old Testament. And what did the people tell him? They said, well, the prophet or the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. So you should go to Bethlehem. Well, where did they get that from? From Micah 5.2. They made the correlation that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And they got that from Micah 5.2. And now let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, as we look at this prophecy. And when you look at Isaiah 7:14, let's just glimpse ahead and get ahead of ourselves just a little bit. If you just look at this verse, it's a nice, tidy little package. But as you begin unfolding the whole story and its historical context, in some ways it gets a little messier. But Isaiah 7.14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, and shall call, or excuse me, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, you've, you've heard this verse. You've read this verse, uh, the passage that Phil just read in Matthew. Um, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looks back to Isaiah 7.14 and says, This is Jesus. He was the one that was born of the Virgin Mary, that was conceived not of man, but of the movement of the Holy Spirit. He was God from everlasting in the past, and He will be God everlasting forward, and yet He was born in simple circumstances in Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary. So that's ultimately where Matthew goes with that. That's ultimately the fulfillment. And yet Isaiah is speaking in a much more historical context to people that were there about their circumstances. So we're going to look a little bit more at this. In Isaiah chapter 7, it opens up and it says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then we're introduced to some other guys. Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Okay, I'm going to try to be on my A game 
today, you're really going to have to be on your A game to try to follow and fit these pieces together. And with this, hopefully, hopefully we'll come away with some, uh, a little more understanding of this passage. And also, hopefully, I, I will not leave us application free. Hopefully, you can come forward from this and say, you know what, here's what we can apply today. Okay, so keep a finger there in Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to keep walking through this, but I want you to go back to 2 Kings 16. 2 Kings 16. And let me begin reading. It says this. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Now let's pause there for just a second. I should have already said this. But by this point in the Jewish people's history, their kingdom was divided. You had the ten tribes that were up in the north, this at times referred to as the northern tribes of Israel. At times it was called just Israel. Um, their capital was the city of Samaria. And then you had the two tribes in the south, which were referred to as Judah or the southern tribe. And their capital was Jerusalem. Okay, so at this point in history, you've got a king of Israel that's based out of Samaria, and you've got a king of Judah that's based out of Jerusalem. Okay, one little tidbit that you should also know, the, the tribes of Israel never had a king that followed God. They were all wicked guys that served other gods. And you also see because of that, they were the first ones to be destroyed, removed, and taken off the scene in 722 BC by the Assyrians. Okay, then you've got the tribes of Judah, who they had some good kings, they had some bad kings, some that loved God, some that turned and worshipped false gods, and they lasted until about 586 BC when they were overthrown by the Babylonians. So a little bit of history there just to keep in mind, and we'll try to kind of keep these dynamics straight. So back to 2 Kings 16. Verse 2, it says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. Again, he was the king of Judah. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had. And this really would have been a great, great, great grandfather, David. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Then Rezin, king of Syria... And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. Okay, hit the pause button there for just a second. Okay, so you've got the wicked king of Israel, who we're introduced to. His name is Pekah. And at times he's just referred to as the son of Remaliah. You've got him, and then you've got the king of Syria. There, that capital would have been Damascus, but this guy's name was Rezin. They basically, all of them were seeing the handwriting on the wall that the Assyrians, they were the world power, they were wicked, they were wreaking havoc in that area, and they were the world power that was going to have to be dealt with. So Israel and Syria, they come and they're trying to come to the king of Judah and they're saying, hey, we need to make an alliance. We need to work together to overthrow Assyria and to try to keep plugging ahead. And guess what? The king of Judah was like, no, 
we're not going to do that. And in fact, he ends up making a treaty, not with those two kings, not with Israel, not with Syria, but he makes a treaty with Assyria themselves, with a guy by the name of Tiglath-Pileser. Are you still with me? I know this is a lot. It's a lot of details. Okay. Then let's look at verse 5. Then Rezin, king of Syria and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. And at that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him and the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus, which was Syria, and took it carrying its people captive to Kerr and he killed Rezin. Okay, so again, let's rewind just a hair. You've got, again, Israel, the northern tribe. You've got Syria. They're in an alliance together to try to defeat Assyria and to hang on for dear life. They're trying to get Judah to come on board, and Judah doesn't come on board, so they ended up attacking Judah. And in fact, in one day, the coalition between Israel and Syria killed 120,000 Judah warriors. So you had the two tribes... What was once the United Kingdom of Israel were fighting against each other. And then they took 200,000 people captive until basically they were strongly warned by God of saying, hey, you got to let these men and women go. And they did. So they're still wanting Judah and, uh, to be a part of them, and Judah has made a backroom back deal with Assyria to basically say, hey, Israel and Syria are coming up us against us again. Come and help us. Bail us out. We'll send you tribute. We'll do whatever we need to do if you'll come and save us. Because they, they'd seen some military defeats against Israel and Judah. Against Israel and Syria, sorry. Are you still tracking? Okay, I know this is a lot. By the way, keep in mind what we just read in verses 8 and 10. There's some really cool archaeological evidence that we're going to point to at the end as we make some application. Now flip back to Isaiah chapter 7. You've got King Ahaz, this king of Judah. He's a man that's already made this backdoor deal with Assyria. He's already, in a sense, sold out. He's not putting his faith and trust in God. He's already worshiping false idols. And in fact, we, we learned that he even sacrificed his son, just like the pagans did. Certainly not a guy that was following after God's heart. And in Isaiah chapter 7, let's again read in verse 1 as we kind of make our way through this story, this history. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria... And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. Okay, this was the second attack. But could not yet mount an attack against it. And when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. When you read Ephraim, that was one of the tribes of Israel. 
So it's referring to Israel. Ephraim, Israel, same same affiliation. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Okay, let's pause for a second. So Ahaz, you know, he's the king of Judah. These two tribes, their capital was Jerusalem. They've already experienced military defeats. Again, they lost 120,000 warriors in one day already to, the, to Israel. Okay, and now they're looking at a siege on Jerusalem. They're looking at another attack, and the people are afraid. You would be too. Ahaz is afraid. Really, the, the verbiage that's used there, the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. The way we'd probably just term that would be, they were shaking in their boots. And they're looking for a deliverer, and they're looking in all the wrong places. Instead of looking to where their forefathers had looked and looking to the God of Israel, looking to the one true God, they were looking for a political alliance. And Ahaz had already sold out. So in verse 3, it says, And the Lord said to Isaiah, his prophet, he says, Hey, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shirjashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So why was Ahaz there? Well, when you're about to undergo a siege, what becomes really, really important? Your water supply. Okay, so he's out, he's inspecting the water supply, probably seeing if there was damage from the previous attacks, making sure that the city had a good water supply, food supply, all these kind of things before this imminent attack. And in verse 4 it says, And say to him, Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has, de evil, has devised evil, evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Okay, so God is basically saying, Hey, Isaiah, go find King Ahaz and tell him, You know what? You're shaking in your boots. Calm yourself. God's in control. The king of Israel, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Rezin, the king of Syria, they're just a smoldering stump. And again, this, this would have been, I mean, if you're in Ahaz's shoes, you're, but, but God, I mean, they just, they just killed a lot of our people. They just took a lot of our people captive. I mean, surely they're a threat. I mean, we got to do something about this. And, and God is simply saying through his prophet, no, don't fear. I've got this. And the plan with uh, those two nations were they were going to depose Ahaz. They were going to eliminate him from being the king of Judah. And they were just going to set up their own little puppet king, this uh, son of Tobiel. Verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria, their capital is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, the king Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim, the northern kingdom Israel, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah, 
if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And here we, f- we see a warning. I mean, God is, God is saying to Ahaz, he's saying, you're enemies of Israel at this point. You're enemies of, of Syria. They're about to be done away with. They're not a threat. Within 65 years, even, Ephraim is going to be completely removed. And, and by the way, God fulfilled that in 722 B.C. that um, the northern kingdom, Samaria, Israel, they were basically destroyed. And then in 669 B.C., um, the king of Assyria took and he filled their old land with foreigners so that there basically was hardly any people left. God fulfilled his promises here. So look at the end of verse 9. He's saying to Ahaz, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And he's basically saying, Hey, trust God or lean on your own devices. Lean on your own political alliances. In verse 10, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. If you want to just put that in our verbiage, he's saying, hey, you want to know that this is going to come about? You want to know that you can trust God? Well, just ask. Ask for a sign. Shoot for the stars. Don't let it be something small. That's kind of cool. Look at how Ahaz response in verse 12 but Ahaz says I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test and he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy I mean it sounds really religious it sounds really pious but what is it he's already he's basically just saying no I've made up my mind I'm going to put my faith in my alliance with Assyria. And notice in verse 13, it goes, um, the language changes from Isaiah. Isaiah is saying, um, in verse 13, he says, Hear, and he said, Hear then, O house of David. At this point, he's not just speaking to Ahaz. He's saying, okay, if you're not going to listen, then Everyone, listen up. Verse 13, he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? And basically saying, hey, you've been wearing out the patience of men. You're wearing out the patience of God. And then in verse 14, we get to our verse that you're familiar with. But again, it's in this context, this historical context, that he says, hey, you know what? Basically, God says, you said you don't want a sign? Well, guess what? I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And it's going to be something huge. However, we cannot divorce that from, again, its historical context. So let's read the next few verses. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. 
The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people, upon your father's house, such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim, that's Israel, departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Okay, so he's saying, again, big picture, and again, this is where prophecy gets really interesting. Because I think Isaiah, he's looking at Ahaz, and he's looking and he's saying that there's going to be a sign that is going to take place basically in the next few years. He's saying there's going to be a baby that's going to be born, and before this baby knows how to choose good or bad, these two leaders, these two countries are going to be an afterthought. They're going to be removed from off the scene. So again, I think a couple weeks ago I gave this example of when you're in the mountains and from a distance you see two different peaks and it looks like they're right next to each other. And then you start climbing one of the mountains and you actually get on one of the peaks and then you find out that there's actually a huge valley and then clear off in the distance is the second peak. I think, again, we have that kind of aspect in which he's given... Some, some stuff that's going to take place in just the next few years, and yet he's given them the really big picture of there's going to be a baby born of a virgin, and his name's going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay, so how do you combine these two? And again, this is where commentators, you can look at a bunch of different commentators, and all of these guys are diligent, and a lot of them just kind of come up with different, different interpretations of exactly what's going on here. Look over in chapter 8 for just a second. It says this, Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Meher Shalah Hashbaz. Don't name your kid that, all right? It's a mouthful. It says, And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberkiah, to test for me. And this is Isaiah, verse 3. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalash Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Are you following a little bit of this? So I actually think the, the right then within the next few years, I think the prophetic fulfillment was in Isaiah's son, this Maher Shalash Baz. And I probably butchered that again. Okay, so he went into his wife. And you may say, well, what about the, the part in Isaiah 7.14 where it says a virgin will conceive? Well, within the Hebrew, that word Alma it can have a little bit of variation where it can mean someone that has never been with a man, but it can also mean more a young woman. And I think for whatever reason, the immediate fulfillment was in the fact that it was a young woman who would soon conceive of a child. And then you'd say, okay, well, his name, this guy's name, Isaiah's son's name was not Emmanuel. And it says in 714 that his name, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So what do you do with that? This guy's name, Isaiah's son's name, is given Maher Shalal Hashbaz. We'll look down a little bit further in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 8. It says this, and it's warning about the Assyrian Empire and how their Judah's just made an alliance with them. Well, guess what? That's the real threat. Isaiah 8, 8 says, And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel, 
Okay, kind of interesting that it's not referring to a person in this instance, it's referring more to the people as a whole and to their land. Let me keep going in verses 9 and 10. Be broken, you peoples. Be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Emmanuel. Okay, so that's where that's my, how I would interpret that. And if you disagree with me, that's okay. But I think there's a literal fulfillment that I think it just lines up with what he's saying. Hey, a son is going to be born of at least a young woman. And Matthew makes it very clear that it's not just a young woman. Mary wasn't. She was a virgin. He goes to great details in Matthew chapter 1 to say, to the Virgin Mary, when the Holy Spirit came upon her to conceive the Christ child. And then he even goes on and says, and Joseph did not know or have a sexual relationship with Mary until after the birth of Jesus, the miracle child, the Son of God. Okay? So that's where I'm landing on all this. And again, if you want to disagree with me, I'm perfectly okay with that. And I've been wrestling with this passage all week. I remember even in grad school, I had to write a paper on this. And I remember the, the turmoil and wrestling through exactly what was going on here as well. But I think there was an immediate fulfillment. And by the way, one of the cool things about the Bible, and we see this again in this passage, is that when God was inspiring these guys to write down the words that he had for them, He's not using ambiguity. Um, he's writing in literal time and space. These are, these are characters in which are recorded in history. These guys, Rezin, the son of Remaliah, Pekah, Isaiah, Ahaz, the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, these are historical figures. This is written at a real time in history that, that people say was in about 734 BC. So I want you to, to come away once again that this is just another instance in which you look at the pages in the Bible and you see this is not a fairy tale. This is not fictional. This is an historical document that has been breathed out by God. Ultimately, not just so that we know history, but that we would know God. And it's accurate. And I came across something that was really cool in regard to that. Do you remember those couple of verses in 2 Kings 16 that I said, hey, remember those? Okay, I'm going to shift back to that for a second. What kind of archaeology would substantiate all this? Well, let me just read a little bit. It says, At this time, King Ahaz sought help from the Assyrians. He sent messengers to King Tiglath-Pileser III, saying, Come up and save me out of my hands of the, my enemies. Ahaz took the silver and the gold out of the temple, and he sent it to Tiglath-Pileser to appease him, and basically to try to buy him off so he'd come and help him against the king of Israel and the king of Syria. This tribute that Ahaz took from the temple is confirmed by the discovery of a summary inscription 7 from Tiglath-Pileser's palace. The inscription reads this, From these I receive tribute, Sanupu of Ammon, Salamanu of Moab, Mitanid of Ashkelon, and Jehoahaz of Judah. 
The Bible says Ahaz. It's referring to the same guy Jehoahaz. It's just a longer version of Ahaz. And then, I'll skip just a little bit. It says, including, this was the tribute that was received, gold and silver, iron, fine cloth, and many garments made from wool. But do you remember what Ahaz sent over? He sent gold and silver out of the temple. And by the way, on this website that I found this piece of archaeology, they, they had a picture of this, of this fragment document. And again, it just reinforces that, you know, this is accurate. We can trust what God has given us. It's not ambiguous like some other holy writings in which, you know, who knows where it actually took place. Who knows if it's actually referring to historical figures. And if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, I did eight years ago, and you walk in the midst of the Bible coming to life. You've been there. I mean, it's cool. You just see the Bible come to life because it's real uh, geography, it's real history, and there's evidence galore. There was another instance of that, and I'll, I'll skip that for now, but come away with this. The Bible is accurate. You can trust it. There's a lot of evidence that points to it and substantiate it, rather than just relying on, on feelings of whether it may or may not be true. That's one application. Two, in this passage, you, you could just kind of see the, the, the dangers of sin. You see within Ahaz, the person that this uh, is really about, you just see his, his struggle with, okay, who am I going to put my trust in? Am I going to trust the God of my fathers, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham? Or when times are perilous, am I going to trust in my own circumstances? You see this sin cycle, the fact all throughout the pages of the Old Testament, you find that God's people, they would serve him faithfully, and then their hearts would be led astray. They would turn to false gods, and then God would get their attention. He'd discipline them, he'd punish them, and he'd send some people group, maybe even to enslave them. And then they would repent, and then there would be a time of restoration, and you just kind of see this sin cycle all throughout the Old Testament. And at times as you're reading the Bible, don't you get really frustrated with the Jewish people? You're like, come on, you just went through this. And then I have to remind myself and say, you know what? Brent, you are just like those people that frustrate you as you read about them. Your, your heart is fickle. One moment, you're loving God, you're worshiping Him, even teaching His Word, and the next minute, you're turning to your own devices and choosing sin over the Savior. You see this sin cycle. Another point of application, we find that uh, God keeps His promises. And when God sends a, a true prophet, a man of God, who, by the way, it's not like a baseball player in which one out of every three hits, you get on base and you're like an all-star. I mean, with God's prophets, you're batting 100% or else you're not a prophet of God. It's like, it's all true. And you find again, when God speaks, when He truly speaks, and when he's speaking to his prophets, every single bit is going to come true. It does. And even in this passage where you see, an, I think, an immediate fulfillment just in the next few years, and yet you see the bigger, hey, 
shoot for the stars. Oh, you don't want that sign? Well, guess what? I'm going to give it to you anyway. There's going to be a time in which God is going to come and he's going to be with you, Emmanuel. And he's going to be born of the Virgin Mary. God keeps his promises. And ultimately, I think we come, we've got to come away with this application. Um, this passage, when Isaiah is showing up to Ahaz, in a sense, it was almost Isaiah's drawing a line in the sand. And he's saying, okay, this is your chance, Ahaz. I know you've been through a lot of hurts. You've seen a lot of bad things happen to your people. But now, who are you going to serve? Where are you going to put your trust? Are you going to put it in the world power? Are you going to put it in Tiglath-Pileser III, the king of Assyria, the world power? Or are you going to trust in God? You've already made this alliance. You can break that. You can turn back and trust God. And instead, he responded with lack of belief, religious piety. No, no, I, I don't want to test God. He had already made up his mind. So just kind of the words that uh, you read back in Joshua, I would commend you, I would implore you to, again, as you face a new day, as you face this Christmas season, I would say, choose you this day whom you will serve. Will you choose to serve the God of Israel or will you turn to idols just as you see the pattern in the Bible? Have you turned your sight? Have you turned your belief to that baby that was born in Bethlehem? Fulfilling prophecy that was made over 700 years beforehand that God would be with us. A God who had no beginning because he was God. The eternal God, the one true God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who was not born as every one of us was with a physical father and mother, but he was born of the Holy Spirit. Have you turned your faith in that child who grew lived the sinless life that we have not lived and ultimately went to the cross to die for sinners just like you and me. And the Bible says that basically, again, just this idea of choose who you're going to serve. You can turn to your own thoughts, your own devices, your own plans. You can turn to religious, you can say nice things, but what will you do with Jesus? Have you placed your faith alone in Christ? Let's pray. God, 